Hello, I'm Neil Leslie, and you're listening to Tipping Points, a climate podcast with myself and Sean Accor from two possible alternative futures where we speak to change makers and experts about the dangers and impacts of a world tipping into runaway climate change and the actions that they believe can still tip us back the other way. Today, we've been talking with Luke Kemp from the Centre for the Study of Existential Risk at Cambridge University in the UK. And as the name suggests, he researches some pretty serious and even terrifying scenarios around the potential collapse of societies and extinction-level threats to humanity from things like catastrophic climate change. In his Climate Endgame report, he has studied the risk of some of the worst-case scenarios if temperatures are left to rise unchecked. And today, he also shares with us the warnings from the ghosts of civilizations past as to how their societies collapsed and what the likes of the Romans can't actually do for us to help us avoid a similar fate. Thanks for listening. I guess the first question that occurs to me is that that sounds quite serious. It sounds quite scary to some people. Can you tell us a little bit, you know, about what you do and what happens at the centre? So the mission of the centre is to study any risk that is capable of causing either human extinction or global societal collapse. So depending upon who you are, I guess that can be quite worrisome. (laughs) And my work crosses a few different areas. So I've worked previously in biosecurity, and now most of my work focuses on both extreme climate change and societal collapse. So looking at both modern day state failures and examples of when empires, kingdoms and different kinds of states in the past have fallen apart and trying to figure out if there's any kind of underlying dynamics or commonalities, which we can then potentially apply for thinking about future global collapse. Very interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, which of those empires of the past should we be kind of uh, looking to for for lessons and learnings as to what's going on in, in our world today? So in general, I try to think about world systems, so basically very large empires or collections of states that have existed over an entire kind of world region. Since in this case, we're thinking about the entire global economy, you want to have something that's comparable and thinking about one small kingdom really isn't. But if you're thinking about an entire very large scale empire or a very large network of states, I think that's much more appropriate. So the ones which I think are probably most applicable will be something like the fall of the Western Roman Empire or potentially the what's called the Late Bronze Age Collapse. To me, that's the most interesting one. And the Late Bronze Age Collapse, if you don't know, is essentially around about 1177 BCE. We had a collection of states in the Mediterranean Basin, so the Hittite Empire, the Egyptian Kingdom and many others, who all were very diplomatically interconnected and traded quite a lot, particularly both uh, tin and copper, which were the prerequisites of bronze obviously what the age is known for. Their fall seems to coincide with a number of different things, including potentially most importantly, a long-term drought due to a variation in the regional climate. Um, There's also other things, a series of earthquakes hit the region. There were migrations from the north, once again, due to climatic variation and change. And a number of other factors, including in the long-term an increasing amount of inequality, which seems to have potentially driven revolutions and social change over when. Nonetheless, I mean, these are all different pressures, which seem to eerily echo some of the pressures and stresses we face today. If you're interested in that, I recommend the book by Eric Klein, 1177 BC, which is a very easy read and also probably the best piece we have on the collapse of the Bronze Age system. 
Wow, that's a, that sounds like um total world collapse, doesn't it? Really, like if you're likening those two incidences, like the bronze bronze age and societies today. But um, you recently spoke at a conference that examined what we call tipping points, which is the name of this podcast. Um, could you explain, sort of, in layman's terms, a little bit about those? A tipping point is a large scale shift that occurs once you get past a critical threshold where you have self-propelling feedbacks kick into the system and push it potentially irreversibly into a new qualitative state. So one way of thinking about this is in terms of ice sheets, for instance. We have some good studies now on the Antarctic ice sheet. And as we all know, as you kind of lose ice, you expose more of the ocean. And ice is obviously white, the ocean's not. So it means that as you lose ice, you start to lose the reflexivity of the earth. In other words, there's less sunlight being reflected and more being absorbed by the earth system, which of course increases warming, which increases the amount of ice loss, etc. So that's the idea of a positive feedback, a, a feedback in which the initial change is amplified. And the idea of a tipping point is essentially you have these after a certain point kick in to such an extent that the system starts to shift into a different state. And often you can't stop that shift because there's so many feedback loops being activated. And the big concern... Sorry, go on. No, no, no worries. And the big concern or idea here for the Earth system is that we may knock off several different regional or global tipping points, including loss of the Arctic sea ice, the conversion of the Amazon basin into a different kind of ecosystem, as well as things like the slowing down or even reversal of what's called the AMOC, um, which essentially is kind of overturning of cold and um, warm water in the Atlantic Ocean. Essentially, there's several tipping points. And if we knock enough of them over, we could essentially see a shift from one Earth system state, so the Holocene, this kind of stable climate we currently have now, to one in which the world is much warmer. And obviously, because of that, looks much, much different with far higher sea levels, for instance. So it's basically the point of no return. It gets to a point where our weather systems will never be what they once were. So we're looking at a completely different planet where we have to get used to completely different systems, completely different climates? Almost certainly. It will vary, of course, by the tipping point in the area. So there's some good work being done by Ricarda Winkleman and her colleagues at the Potsdam Institute, which essentially shown that once you go past two degrees Celsius in terms of warming above pre-industrial levels globally, then the Antarctic ice sheet changes in such a way that even if we return to current greenhouse gas levels, even if we return to the current climate, the ice sheet will never regain its current configuration. You'd have to go roughly two degrees below the current climate for it to regain its, its, its uh, current configuration. So for many of these changes, they could be either irreversible or at the very least incredibly difficult to reverse. I was reading on the, in the, that report of the conference, uh, Luke, that you're... According to one description, anyway, the audience was stunned into silence by some of the the things that you might say around this uh, you know area of tipping points and and possible very extreme kind of climate changes, and that presumably was a very learned audience. So do you do you find that that people are you know nowhere near recognizing or you know thinking or realizing about these kind of tipping points and and what they what they could potentially mean? I think so, and I think 
it's difficult, even as someone who's working in the field, to keep up with all the latest advances in our knowledge around those different tipping points. And one of the most scary things about the conference was actually being inundated with the latest research. And so, for instance, I was part of the opening panel where I spoke alongside a number of scientists, mainly from the Potsdam Institute, who were talking about different potential tipping points, um, ranging from sea ice loss through to the AMOC. And each of those presentations essentially drove home a message of this was worse than I expected. And I'm already a fairly pessimistic person who knows the science fairly well, um, but the latest projections and developments are actually more worrisome than I had expected. So I think that was the, the grounds for some of the, the shock and awe that the audience may have experienced. Sure. And, and can you tell us a little about some of the, the evidence again uh, in sort of layman's terms that we have approached and possibly even passed according to, to some scientists or some measures, some of these tipping points? So one of the best publications we have on this was released last month by Armstrong Mackay et al. And this essentially tries to catalogue all the different Earth system tipping points that could occur in the future. And the really scary thing here is one of the things they do is look at, over time, what have been the estimates of what temperature rise do you need for a certain tipping point to likely occur? And essentially, with every subsequent study, the likely temperature required to set off a tipping point is lowered. So if it was three degrees previously, it's then become two and a half, then two, then 1.5, etc. This varies across the different tipping points by how much, but essentially all of them have lowered over time. So the key message there is the more we know, the worse it seems. The other thing that has been spoken about now, which I think is an important and worrisome development, is the idea of a tipping cascade. And this is the idea that breaching the critical threshold of one tipping point, essentially activating one tipping point, potentially increase the probability of another tipping point occurring. And so you get essentially a potential domino effect occurring. And that's something which often isn't figured into our analyses, but seems both quite plausible, if not quite likely to occur, and would obviously increase the likelihood of most of these tipping points being triggered. The other worrisome thing in that report is that many of the tipping points we're discussing are likely to be occurring in the ballpark of 2 degrees, 1.5 degrees. So even the Paris Climate Agreement of 2 degrees is unlikely to be a fully safe barrier for humanity. Just one example of that is the loss of coral reefs at low latitude areas. Essentially, coral reefs are, are gone by 2 degrees, um, particularly in low latitude areas. And some of the scientists who spoke to me at the conference were people working on coral reefs and they seemed to get the message of thinking about the worst case very clearly because in many cases what they're looking at with coral reefs is it's going worse than the worst case projections. Well, I mean, and then we've got some estimates suggesting that the world could warm by as much as 8 degrees in 20 years if these tipping points are passed. If that were to happen, worst case scenario, what would that look like for people living on Earth? And bear in mind, this would be a long-term change. So this would probably be occurring over the space of at least 200 years. Um, the highest projections we really have for warming occurring within this century is close to the ballpark of kind of five or six. Uh, even that, of course, is far less likely. If we did warm by eight degrees above pre-industrial levels, 
I don't fully know. I mean, no one does. Right now, the vast majority of research focuses upon looking at impacts and changes at 2 degrees or 1.5 degrees. So I was involved with two text mining exercises of where we basically text mined IPCC reports to see how often they talk about different temperature rise scenarios. And in short, 2 degrees and 1.5 degrees were massively over-represented, while temperatures of 3 degrees and above were underrepresented both relative to 1.5 and 2, but also relative to the probability. So we don't know very much about these extreme warming scenarios, but particularly once you start to get to 5 and 6 degrees. Part of that is because they are just difficult to study. Geologically, we, sorry, we have to rely mainly upon geological studies at this stage. One thing we can say is that the last time we had a rise of 8 to 10 degrees, that was coincided with what's called the Great Permian Dying, which is the worst mass extinction event in the Phenozoic history of Earth. So we've had five mass extinction events. Each of those seems to have been caused by or implicated with climate change, and four of those were warming. The Great Permian Dying was the worst. We lost potentially up to 90% of the biosphere. And that was roughly 8 to 10 degrees. Now, of course, there are other factors involved as well. But one thing to bear in mind here is that this occurred over thousands of years. What we're doing in terms of speed and the rate of change is geologically unprecedented. So how would it look? Whew. I mean, in the very long term, you're likely to see the same kind of mass extinction event triggers occurring. So things like large-scale ocean anoxia, basically the oceans start to lose their oxygen. This is due to a combination of acidification as well as due to the higher uh, amount of carbon dioxide and the warmth of the Earth system. As the oceans lose their oxygen and become anoxic, essentially bacteria start to take over, bacteria which produce sulfur dioxide, and so sulfur hydrogen, I should say. And basically this starts to then flood away from the oceans onto terrestrial life, so onto land, and of course start to cause death on land as well. So that's one of the key triggers for large-scale mortality and species loss that happens during mass extinction events. And that's something we can probably expect to happen if we do get to 8 degrees. That would be very long-term. Long that would be essentially the space of thousands, if not tens of thousands of years. Likewise, we're looking at thousands of years. You can also expect to see probably greater than 50 meters of sea level rise as well. We lose, at the very least, the... Well, we definitely lose the Arctic. We probably lose almost all the Antarctic, if not all of it. Um, as well as much of the Greenland ice sheet. So you're looking at 50 metres plus sea level rise. On top of that, large swathes of the Earth start to experience lethal heat conditions um, for extended periods of time, which means we'll probably almost certainly have to have mass migration probably towards the polar regions, which will at least increase in terms of the um, how habitated they, they can be. So it's a completely different Earth system. It's a completely different world, and... Human civilization, as we know it, may not be compatible with it. We just don't know at this stage. Sounds like something from one of these dystopian fantasies, doesn't it, that you see on television where everything's just gone? But th this is the report you did called Climate Endgame, wasn't it? The one about four, five, and six where you spoke about... Yeah, Climate Endgame. We try to cover both a rationale as to why we should be exploring these worst-case scenarios. And keep in mind, when I say worst-case scenarios or extreme risk or even catastrophic climate change, what we're really talking about is not just scenarios where we get above three degrees of warming, but we're also talking about thinking about the knock-on effects and the risk cascades that climate change could trigger. 
Because right now our risk analysis tends to be very simplistic. We tend to just basically tally up the impacts at an individual level. So you think of how much GDP will be lost due to sea level rise, how much GDP will be lost due to likely heat waves, etc. That's not how risk works in the real world. And if you did that for COVID-19, for instance, you'd be missing the big picture, which is things like healthcare system collapse and obviously the knock-on effects that had. The response measures of shutting down international travel, um, obviously affects that on supply chains, etc. That's how risk really works. And that's, I think, for me, the most worrisome thing when we start to look at climate change is all the different knock-on effects it could potentially have. So you could potentially have catastrophic or even extreme climate change even if you don't get that warming above 3 degrees. Even at 2 degrees or 2.5, things may already be pretty grim. Because yeah, two was once considered not that long ago, you know, keeping us within a safe range of warming, I think. Uh, and we've heard a lot now about 1.5. But I, I noticed some of the, the contributors at your conference were calling for a new IPCC report on this more extreme end of the spectrum. Is that something that you think we need to, you know, wake people up to to what, what could be the absolute extreme of this uh, crisis? Yes, and I think it would be incredibly useful in terms of galvanizing the necessary research. As mentioned, both extreme risk analysis, but also looking at these higher temperature range scenarios are both neglected. And one thing IPCC reports do quite well is they catalyze research. Once we had the announcement of the 1.5 degree report in the wake of the Paris Climate Change Conference, that helped to both push the scientific research community towards studying the impacts and as well as mitigation of 1.5. And it also, once we had the report released, really created a groundswell of action. I think, for instance, both the popularity of Extinction Rebellion as well as Greta Thunberg really coincide with this report. It's hard to disentangle the two. And I would hope that a catastrophic climate change report would do a very similar feat. There's actually two different reports being pushed right now. They might get combined. One is a special report on tipping points. And that's being pushed by Switzerland and several other countries in the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. What we called for in Climate Endgame is a special report on catastrophic climate change. They're technically distinct, but I could imagine one being folded into the other. I just, I mean, you've spoken a lot there, a bit about the the climactic climactic kind of... uh processes and the extremes but does your work then involve how that uh, impacts on civilization collapse and how does all that unfold in those type of scenarios what what kind of things would would we see happening in in civilized civilized societies precisely so for me my greater interest as well as expertise lies more in thinking about social tipping points in particular negative social tipping points so keep in mind these tipping point dynamics we talk about They don't just apply to Earth systems, they also apply to social systems. And even, for instance, societal collapse can be thought of as one particular kind of tipping point, where you have enough stresses being applied to a state or society that eventually you set off processes where it makes it much more likely it's going to shift to another state. And in this case, a state which may have less political hierarchy, less trade in GDP, and less population density, for instance. One thing to be reminded is when I use the term collapse, it's not always a bad thing. I think historically, many state collapses have actually been a good thing for the majority of citizens. But that's a di- different thing to get to. Now, when it comes to negative social tipping points, what we're really talking about here is potentially things like 
conflict, of course, but also very under underexplored areas like the collapse of the reinsurance industry, which could very well happen, but has been dramatically underexplored. This, in general, is a pretty low research area. Um, there's definitely some pieces like conflict which have been much more well studied. So, for instance, we know at least looking at kind of modern day examples that climate change seems to exacerbate existing conflict. There's more debate about whether it actually sparks or initiates conflict, but it does seem to exacerbate conflict, make it worse, particularly in cases where you have um, ethnic-driven conflict and cases where there's already pre-existing bad governance. There is debate about how much it worsens it, but there's also a lot of uncertainty about how this changes this relationship between conflict and climate at higher temperatures. Will it get exponentially worse at 2 degrees in comparison to what we currently have, 1.2 degrees? That's difficult to tell. And much of my research will be essentially trying to peer into the darkness and understand how these potential tipping points change as you get to 2 degrees, 1.5 and above, basically. Um, And for me, I'm also particularly interested in how they interlink and potentially feed into this bigger tipping point of collapse of moving from one social state into another. Should we be panicking about these kind of extinction level events or the collapse of society in 10, 20, 30, 40 years? And oh, I don't think panic is a useful emotion. <laughs> should we be should we be worried? Yes. Should we be taking these extreme or catastrophic scenarios seriously yes and i think the problem is we haven't so far we haven't even tried to directly study them you know despite both citizens as well as scientists often asking this question of how bad could climate change get could it result in global side collapse we haven't actually had any good direct studies of that and that is something that we need to start taking seriously and there's very plausible reasons to believe that in the very long term Climate change could lead to global societal collapse or even a human extinction, I think. This is something we outline in the paper by referring to four different kind of key plausible areas for concern. One is, I've already mentioned, the precedent that climate change has caused mass extinction events in the past. And what we're doing is geologically unprecedented in speed. And additionally, that humans seem to be quite adapted to one particular climatic niche. So there's a good paper a few years ago from a colleague of mine, Zhu Qi, called The Future of the Human Climate Niche. And essentially, they did some modeling looking at human population density over the last few thousand years. And they found that it's tended to concentrate in a climatic envelope of roughly 13 degrees mean annual temperature. What that means is roughly 80% of human population has stuck to a pretty small climatic envelope. And that seems to, according to other studies, also be the climatic envelope which coincides with kind of optimum conditions for economic growth. I don't think we can move that envelope so easily without us having to change quite dramatically. And what we're doing with climate change is we're actually shrinking that envelope and changing its distribution as well. So that's one reason. The other three we talk about are latent risk. So climate change impeding our ability to recover from another catastrophe, say, for instance, nuclear war one that we should all have in the back of our mind right now. And systemic risk. So climate change causing enough individual disruptions that eventually 
it balloons into something much larger, essentially a systems-wide failure, which is something we saw, for instance, when it came to the global financial crisis. And last but not least is this climate change triggering other catastrophes, whether that be nuclear war, for instance, bio threats or something else. So one thing we do in the paper is we provide some modeling where we look at a temperature rise of 2.8 by Earth to 3.2 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels by 2070. This is something that we can get under kind of mid to high level emission scenarios. We then projected them to both fragile states, so the states that are kind of weak, most weakly governed right now, the most likely to fail, the most vulnerable. And we also looked at how it coincides with nuclear powers, countries that actually have nuclear arsenals, there's nine of them right now, as well as to what are called biosafety level four facilities. These are the facilities working on the most dangerous pathogens in the world, and in many cases don't have adequate biosecurity themselves. What we found is when you project what's called extreme warming, so a mean annual temperature of 29 degrees Celsius, these are extreme conditions which only 20 million people currently experience. And almost all those people are not in urban areas. They're in the Sahara Desert, for instance. Um, that would then in the future cover both 2 billion people. It primarily covers, worrisomely, the most fragile states, so the Horn of Africa, for instance, countries like Sudan, and it additionally will affect two nuclear powers, India and Pakistan, as well as seven biosafety level four facilities. So overall, that gives us a picture that a lot of people have to probably move. There's a whole bunch of states that will probably fail. And there's going to be increased tension on two countries who already don't like each other and have nuclear, power, nuclear weapons. And additionally, there's going to be several facilities working on incredibly dangerous pathogens who are going to be suddenly in much more tumultuous conditions. No, I was going to say it kind of makes you think when you watch programs like UK preppers or US preppers that maybe in the back of it all they might have a little bit of something right somewhere along the lines but <laughs> you know I was kind of wondering you know for people like obviously this is some time off we're talking decades here but how do we prepare for things like this? I mean, the best preparation is allowing it not to occur. So, you know, to me, all this essentially underscores the already powerful message of we need to decarbonize as quickly as possible. Um, my colleague and co-author, Johan Rockström, has talked about the carbon law, the idea that we need to essentially cut emissions, at least CO2 man-made emissions, by half every decade. So we need to halve them by 2030, for instance. That's a monumental, but an utterly achievable task as well. And there's also a bright side to all this, which is that there's an emerging literature called co-benefits, which talks about all the benefits we have when we reduce our emissions. So roughly 8 to 12 million people die every year due to air pollution from greenhouse gases. That's a whole bunch of lives you can already save in the near term without even thinking about climate change if we decarbonize. There's already a whole bunch of other effects in terms of improved productivity, lower respiratory infections, etc., etc., these are enough that by a whole bunch of calculations, for a lot of countries, decarbonizing is already going to be a net economic benefit, even if you don't think about avoiding climate change. So the first and foremost point here is that this should just simply buttress, underpin and underscore the already strong case to reduce our emissions and to decarbonize as quickly as possible. 
Apart from that, if we know how tipping points occur in society, so if we know, for instance, that link between climate change and conflict and how it occurs, it can allow us to hopefully do interventions to stop that tipping point from occurring. So it allows us to tailor our kind of resilience efforts. And to me, that's probably the most important thing, is that this is not just a matter of, this is not about disaster voyeurism or kind of just thinking about the worst case because it's fun. It's really about trying to prevent it by picking out and preventing those tipping points and those feedbacks. And another thing here is that if we're going to consider emergency options, so things like geoengineering, have you, are you familiar with geoengineering or should I quickly explain that? So geoengineering can usually be broken up into two different interventions. In general, it refers to large-scale interventions in the Earth system to mitigate the impacts of climate change. This is usually either through what's called drawdown or negative emissions, so essentially sucking CO2 out of the atmosphere and sequestering it. And the second and kind of much more potentially risky one, but also far cheaper and quicker acting, is what's called solar radiation management. So essentially you try to change the reflexivity of the Earth system, how much sunlight is reflected away from them. The most likely thing we're looking at here, the most likely intervention is what's called stratospheric aerosol injection, where you pump up aerosols, which reflect sunlight, into the atmosphere. That should reduce global temperatures and essentially end up treating the Earth system like a thermostat. We have too many warming agents, we borrow them, we kind of offset them by having some more cooling agents, which act by um, increasing reflexivity. There's potential dangers there as well. So one of the good things is that the aerosols wash out of the atmosphere in roughly two years. So that means that it should be reversible, though we don't know it. However, the downside is that if you have, say, four or three degrees of warming being held back by the stratospheric aerosol injection system, and the system gets knocked off for a prolonged period of time, say through something like a nuclear war, and it would have to be quite a large shock. You know, these systems only cost a couple of billion dollars to run, so you'd have to see quite a big impact on human civilization for, for it to knock down the system for a prolonged period of time. But nonetheless, what you see is a bigger bounce back, obviously, where rather than getting three or four degrees of warming over the space of a century, you get it over the space of a decade or two. That's called termination shock. In short, in order to actually think about these emergency options, like stratospheric aerosol injection, we need to be able to compare their risks and their worst-case scenarios to the risks and worst-case scenarios of climate change. From what you're saying, you believe that or that technology is, is, exists or is able to be deployed. I know a lot of people in the sort of climate movement would be very skeptical of, of geoengineering type fixes uh, and as you've already outlined what can happen to them if they go offline or, or fall into the wrong hands it's uh, akin to something from a Bond movie or something like that but from what <laughs> you're saying there, it is something that you think should be you know actively on the table and explored I'm not sure I think my position is more that it will be at this stage there's already countries who I think are certainly considering it so for instance the United Nations Environment Council for its governing assembly had a discussion about whether we should put together governance recommendations about geoengineering. And there was a number of countries led by both the US and Saudi Arabia who said no, that we shouldn't have this discussion. And it's quite clear the reason, at least in my eyes, they didn't want to start this discussion was because 
they want to have the option to potentially do geoengineering without any having any international oversight. I find it difficult to believe we're going to have the impacts of, say, two degrees or three degrees that we're going to potentially have heat waves that start killing tens or even hundreds of thousands of people, and countries are not going to consider putting a stratospheric aerosol injection on the table. That doesn't mean I personally support or endorse it. It means that, realistically, this is going to be an option that elites are considering, and I prefer that they consider it with all the best information available, including a risk-risk analysis of the risk of climate change versus the risk of these options. As to whether we should be researching it and actually studying it, I think we should be doing some forms of research that don't commit us to actually deploying it. I'm not sure if I personally think we should do it. As mentioned, I think there are downsides to it, and I think what stratospheric aerosol injection basically does is it changes your risk distribution, where the average scenario where nothing goes wrong is probably better but if you do have this kind of really worst-case scenario where we have a nuclear war or even, for instance, a solar flare, so basically an expulsion of electromagnetic radiation from the sun, which knocks out electrical infrastructure on Earth, then those worst-case scenarios could be worse than the warming you're offsetting. Mm. Well, certainly you can already see countries like nations like Saudi Arabia and China and they're uh, experimenting already with cloud seeding trying to get through the droughts that we've seen this year already so uh yeah i just i mean i'm curious about the i can see we, i can sort of get a sense why some of your audiences greet uh what you might say with silence <laughs> and a bit shocked <laughs> presumably that's maybe not the uh, reaction that ultimately you want you want people to to kind of sit up and listen to this kind of stuff i mean do you see your work that way that you're trying to you know sound a, an alarm bell out there to me, it's not even about alarm bells per se. Like This kind of risk management is something we do in a fairly commonsensical and intuitive way for almost every other domain of life. You wouldn't want to be hopping onto an airplane or any other kind of engineering device without knowing the engineers have thought about the worst-case scenario and put in place safety mechanisms for it. Yet we don't choose to do that for the entire Earth system or for the future of our society. That's, that's madness. So to me, this is actually, it's not even about an alarm bell per se, this is actually just about kind of doing good risk management and good science. And I hope that what we've done with Climate Endgame is provide both a good rationale as to why we should be studying these scenarios, a set of reasons as to why we should be taking them seriously, why they're plausible, and a carry-on call for doing research around this, as well as a framework for doing it. You know, one of the things I think we do, which is quite useful, is provide a lexicon, a set of language about talking about catastrophic climate change, different definitions, and also a research agenda, a kind of way of studying these extreme catastrophic scenarios. And ultimately, this is not saying that the worst case is going to happen. It's not saying that climate change will result in human extinction in the long term or anything like that. It's saying that these things are plausible and we should be taking them seriously. We should be, cons- we should be studying them and once we study them, we can hopefully understand the pathways as well as potentially even the probabilities. That was really interesting about what you were saying about the geoengineering. I mean, I don't know. I can see why climate activists and environmentalists are really concerned about that because for me, I think it's almost like a get-out clause, isn't it? A loophole or allowing them to kick the can down the road. So countries that maybe don't want to take the action that they need to take to stop burning fossil fuels, to stop looking for new oil, new gas and everything else so you've got that so it's like well we're not going to stop doing that 
maybe we look for a solution this way. Um, but hand in hand, mm -hmm. kind of with that, I can see a lot of what you're saying is really scary stuff. Like, I mean, you couldn't sit here and listen to you and not be a bit horrified by some of what you've discovered in your research. Um, but out there in the everyday world, the political or the public apathy is absolutely huge. And I was kind of wondering why you think people aren't getting it and why you think that is. Is it just are they burying their head in the sands like the countries that are looking for engineering mm. solutions to the problem? Like, I don't know if you recall Elon Musk putting out a tweet ages ago, like it was quite a while. It got a bit of traction, but it was you know, what could we do to take the carbon out of the air? And, and many of the responses were plant more trees, leave the trees alone. <laughs> you know, like really, the earth has the solutions. It's we're the problem. We just need to figure out not how to be a problem, don't we? I try to avoid Elon Musk's Twitter account where I can. Um, <laughs> in terms of geoengineering, what you're talking about there is actually often referred to as moral hazard, that you're going to create a moral hazard by having the option of geoengineering on the table. So basically, because countries know they have an emergency escape clause, it takes the pressure of them having to reduce emissions. There's mixed evidence about whether moral hazard occurs. I think in this case, there's good enough reasons to take it seriously. And in particular, I think the fact that the countries who have been pushing against having discussions about the governance of geoengineering are the ones who have some of the largest fossil fuel reserves and are also some of the kind of worst actors globally on climate. So Saudi Arabia, for instance, I, I can't help but think, and this is speculation, but I think it's pretty <laughs> informed speculation, that Saudi Arabia, the reason they wouldn't want to have this discussion is because if you have solar radiation management through stratospheric aerosol injection, it means they can use up more of their oil reserves. There's less pressure on reducing emissions as quick as possible. I think there's also a potential risk here when activists talk about emergency and declaring a climate emergency. I can obviously completely empathize and understand where they're coming from, but there is a risk that when you start to paint things as an emergency, you start to justify emergency options and actions. And in this case, for the climate change, that would be something like potentially stratospheric aerosol injection. And I think there's a mismatch between the willingness to always use alarmist language like what's called climate emergency and the inability to have a discussion or a debate about stratospheric aerosol injection. I think unfortunately you can't take one without the other. If you're talking about emergency, you have to also talk about emergency options. Um, even if you're going to say we shouldn't do this for XYZ reason. I had a piece published in BBC Future late last year called Agents of Doom, Who's Creating the Apocalypse and Why? And in it, I emphasize that when you look at different risks, whether it's nuclear weapons or climate change, they tend to follow a very similar distribution in terms of production. They're highly concentrated amongst a very small number of actors. If you're looking at nuclear weapons, two countries hold 89% of the stockpile, the US and Russia. If you're looking at global emissions, then Roughly 75% of global emissions, at least historically, so kind of cumulative emissions, are done by just 10 countries. And one alone has roughly 25% of those, the US. And similarly, when you actually look at the survey data for both whether people support increased climate action as well as how concerned they are about climate change, it's often quite high, which 
suggests to me if you were to actually have direct votes or referenda around these issues, people would actually support probably quite high carbon prices and quite strong action. I think there's two problems. One is there's often a disconnect between how people feel about things like climate and how they vote. And often they'll vote more on the basis of identity rather than the basis of what policies they think should actually be in place. And you see this even Republicans. There's good survey data suggesting the majority of Republicans actually support universal health care. Yet they frequently vote for a party which is dogmatically opposed to that. I think the second problem is that many people have increasingly become despondent about the entire political system and their ability to change it. I think it's difficult to break both of those under the existing political system. And I think the best way to both address climate change as well as other global risks in tandem is through what's called deliberative democracy. And deliberative democracy is basically a, a form of governance where you do lotocracy, you randomly select citizens, and you have them be informed by experts and deliberate on particular policy issues. So we saw this happen in the wake of the Yellow Jacket um, riots in France, where directly afterwards Macron said, okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to run a deliberative assembly, a citizens' assembly on climate change. And France's climate change policy will be dictated by this group of citizens. 150 citizens basically were participated in this. They came up with a very large number of recommendations, I think 142 or 148, something along those lines. By most expert standards, this was an incredibly comprehensive and progressive climate change policy package. Macron then decided to only adopt two of the recommendations, essentially because it was so progressive and comprehensive. <laughs> and we've had a whole bunch of areas where this has actually worked really well. So in Ireland, for instance, the abortion debate made use of a, I think it was an assembly, it was a jury or an assembly, but using the Dilbert Democratic model, Followed by a referendum. Yep, yep. Yep, exactly. In the case of the abortion debate, it also led to a referendum afterwards. And people, I think, often respond reasonably much better to having average citizens talk about why they changed their mind or why they came to a certain conclusion. You know, hearing that from a plumber or a nurse rather than hearing a rehearsed speech from a politician is just always going to feel much more authentic and genuine and something you can connect to. And in general, having these assemblies or juries means that the citizens are buffered against vested interests in lobbying, which obviously is not true for our existing political system. So for me, in a way, this is actually trying to put more faith and trust back into citizens and having a political system which gives them good reason to think that they can invert change in some way. Um, so you yeah, actually have a fair bit of faith that people will not be so despondent once they feel like their political system will actually answer their concerns and that most people actually are quite worried about this and would be willing to take much stronger and pay for much stronger action on climate change. So I was just going to finish up really on a question that sort of often occurs to me when we're doing interviews with people like yourself, Luke, mm -hmm. and you spoke earlier about uh, the extent of the knowledge knowing the science getting a bit uh, scared or pessimistic uh, about it when you know so much about it but so I, I guess I'm wondering on on that sort of personal level when you know you're out and about yourself uh, you know do you get do you talk about this stuff to people what kind of reaction do you get from them or do you 
park it to one side or or how do you sleep at night when you're looking at you know the risk uh, uh, of the various ways the civilization might collapse it always makes for very fun family barbecues no i find that surprisingly you can talk about these things to people and it doesn't turn them off immediately in some ways i think it's easy to talk about then risks and tragedies that are are more acute and close sorry not acute but more close to home more salient i mean for me personally i had a much stronger emotional reaction when i was reading into literature about genocide and democide um so this was part of my book on climate on, on collapse i essentially had to read into this literature and reading about these kind of tragedies and horrific incidents in the past was actually for me much more touching than thinking about eight degrees of warming once you start to think about these really big, scary, unprecedented threats and outcomes, it's easy to emotionally detach yourself, which is both a good thing and a bad thing. It makes them easier to study, and I think easy to have a kind of distance and objectivity. But it also means you can kind of lose sense and sight of the stakes, because you know, the number of lives that could be lost in that degree as well is far greater than any war in the past, for instance. Thanks, Luke, again for your time. It's been absolutely fascinating and terrifying, um, but very interesting and uh, ultimately kind of hopeful speaking to somebody who's, who's looking at all this stuff and trying to get that kind of message out there. So just uh, thank you very much for, for talking to us today. No worries, my absolute pleasure. Thanks a million for listening. And if you enjoyed what you heard, feel free to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.